Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Class War Battlefield podcast. Please do me the honor of supporting this work that I am doing. I've been doing this work now for free on your behalf for, my God, 11 years. 5, 10, 20, 50. If you can afford it, please do cash at me at dollar sign CWB podcast CWB podcast cash app it CWB podcast also also hit me up on PayPal CWB podcast all the way across the board y'all help me out help me out help me out thank you for donating and enjoy the show bygone era of feudal Japan, Ogami Ito, the Shogun's executioner, had glory, honor, loyalty, and a family. Until everything was taken from him, everything except for his son. With his young son in his arms and his sword at hand, Ito sets off on a journey to avenge the death of his wife and clan as an assassin for hire. The deadliest duo imaginable is a father and son who could take on an entire army, known far and wide as Lone Wolf and Cub, walking a thin line between life and death, cutting down all who stand in the way of revenge. They take on corruption, villainy, ninjas, samurai, Everyone is a target for the right price. Forged in battle and tested in fire, with no allegiance but to themselves, on the bloody road to hell, they are assassins. They are vengeance. They are... Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, the cops have just shown up. Not sure what's going on yet. In June. Activists with Atlanta's Stop Cop City movement gathered to honor one of their own. It had been six months since officers killed Manuel Esteban Pais Terán, known as Tortuguita. The 26-year-old environmental activist was part of a movement to stop a police training center from being built in a city forest. Protesters call it Cop City. The vigil for Tortuguito is about to start and a couple dozen police officers just showed up telling people they have to leave the park uh, by tonight. Yeah, the park closed at 11 and everybody got to be out at 11. In the months before Tortuguita's killing, authorities in Georgia launched a crackdown on the movement, characterizing it as a violent extremist organization. And in September, 
61 people were charged in a wide-ranging racketeering case and accused of conspiring to stop the construction of the training center. The defendants are members of Defend the Atlanta Forest, an anarchist, anti-police, and anti-business extremist organization. Most of them are also facing state domestic terrorism charges, the first such cases in Georgia's history. The state repression, the crackdown on even lawful political activities is so severe. That is unprecedented. That means any person moving forward that dissents in any way, just sleeping in a hammock, now you're a terrorist and your life is over. The basis for the domestic terror charges are things like wearing camo, having a jail support number written on their arm, having mud on their clothing. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or an attorney to tell you that breaking windows and setting fires not protest. That is terrorism. There's a lot of concern by legal rights groups, civil liberties advocates about these charges. Uh, I do believe that the proper actions are being done to protect the citizens of the city, uh, to protect this project. Tortuguita's mother traveled from Panama to attend the vigil. Keeping close watch, police circled the park as she spoke. The police are the ones that are creating the terror. So do you think that attitude characterizing the people in the forest as domestic terrorists had something to do with Manuel being killed that day? This uh, uh, crew of police were prepared to kill somebody. We traveled to Atlanta to examine the case against the Stop Cop City movement and what it could mean for the future of protest in the United States. It's political suppression at its core, and that's terrifying. This personality type is quite rare and comes with a number of powerful qualities. What does it mean to have a lone wolf personality? A lone wolf is an independent, self-sufficient person who enjoys solitary activities and has little or no interest in social interaction. The difference between a lone wolf and an introvert. These two personality types are similar but not equal. A lone wolf is certainly an introvert, but not every introvert is a loner. Introversion is about gaining your energy from spending time on your own. It doesn't mean that you are asocial and have no interest in interacting with other people. You just prefer socializing in smaller groups and avoid doing it for extended periods of time. The lone wolf personality, on the contrary, means that you have a very limited interest in building any relationships with other people or earning their acceptance. It's basically an extreme introvert who has a rich inner life and a very low need for socialization. At the same time, the lone wolf is not antisocial and means no harm to other people. It's just a very private person who doesn't easily let others in his or her life, and prefers to keep a safe distance from them. Let's see 10 signs of a lone wolf personality and if you are one of them. 1. You are self-sufficient. You enjoy solitary activities more than group activities. While this is also true for an introvert, a lone wolf goes further than that. If you are one, then your degree of self-sufficiency is so high that you basically need no or very little socialization in your life. You rarely enjoy yourself at any type of social event. In fact, you are more likely to feel bored and lonely at a social gathering than in your own company. Thus, if you go to a party, you will probably spend the evening sitting on your own, 
immersed in the world of your thoughts, in a corner somewhere while everyone else is socializing. 2. You are very skeptical. You don't open up to people easily. To be exact, you rarely let anyone in your quiet little world. You will think twice before sharing any information about yourself with those around you. A lone wolf relies only on themselves and doesn't trust other people easily. While it's not always a good thing as there are still plenty of beautiful souls in the world, having a skeptical personality allows you to stay safe from betrayal and disappointment. This trait can be beneficial because after all, the only person you will spend your life with for sure is yourself. Being guarded means not expecting too much from others and not letting your happiness depend on them. 3. You are very independent. Since a lone wolf relies on internal rewards, it makes sense why they have no interest in trying to earn everyone's acceptance. A sure trait of a lone wolf personality is that you don't care about fitting in or being a part of a group. You are perfectly fine on your own, not belonging anywhere but to yourself and your small family circle. Thus, you will never try to win friends, fish for compliments, or attract everyone's attention in any other way. You will never adopt behaviors or hobbies for the sake of gaining popularity and validation. This is because you strongly believe that if someone is meant to be in your life, they should like the real you. So it makes no sense to try to look or behave like someone you are not. The only people a loner will spend time on are like-minded individuals with similar interests and values in life. 4. You are a private person. Your privacy and personal space mean a world to you, and you don't let anyone violate your boundaries. If someone is trying to snoop into your life, you may become rather tough while protecting your territory. This is another basic difference between a lone wolf personality and an introvert. Introverts often find it hard to say no to others and maintain firm personal boundaries. Lone wolves don't mind openly pushing people away, even if it looks confusing or impolite. However, giving so much importance to privacy also means that you respect other people's boundaries as well. So you will never behave in an intrusive way or disturb anyone's peace. 5. You have an intrinsic motivation. This is another powerful trait of a lone wolf personality. You rely only on intrinsic motivation, which means that you are not interested in what most people in our society pursue. Your own satisfaction from performing a task or achieving a goal is the only thing that matters. External rewards, such as praise, grades, or money, don't interest you. If you have accomplished something, all you want is to feel good about your work and see the positive impact it has on the world. 6. You are highly imaginative. As an introverted loner, you tend to be highly focused on your inner world most of the time. You are an abstract thinker who constantly explores the realm of ideas, theories, and fantasies. Lone wolves are often highly imaginative thinkers who pursue creative endeavors. They have whole galaxies inside their heads and are quite happy living in their own quiet universes. This allows them to live fulfilling lives without being connected to other people. 7. You have a small social circle of high quality. A loner will never waste their time on the wrong people. Being one means that your social circle is very small, and consists of just a couple of people you trust and have a deep connection with. You see no point in having shallow relationships, based more on social obligation than on genuine interest. 
Thus, you will build relationships and friendships only with authentic, deep, and loyal people you resonate with. If someone turns out to be fake or a bad influence, you don't hesitate to cut this individual out of your life. 8. You are a deeply loyal person. A lone wolf is not someone who will fake relationships or pretend to be a nicer person than they are. You will never hear shallow pleasantries or hypocritical compliments from them. If you are one, then you can certainly define yourself as an authentic person. Since you are uninterested in earning other people's approval, you are not afraid to show your true face to the world. You only speak the truth and say what you mean. You see no point in developing a fake persona in order to look more likable to others. All this also means that you are profoundly loyal to those few people you have in your life. They appreciate you for your honesty and raw personality, and you cherish them for being a part of your life because you have good reasons to keep them in it. 9. You are pursuing a creative endeavor. Many people who have the lone wolf personality type tend to be creative in some way. These are the people who are the best painters, poets, and writers. They compose music, embrace photography, and prefer to work alone in silence. Because their work requires them to be independent, they have a natural desire to remain withdrawn from the rest of the world. They accept the isolation because it allows them to see details that they might otherwise miss. 10. You are thought-provoking when people get you talking. The lone wolves have interesting things to say. They might not be fans of small talk, but that doesn't mean they can't be engaging in a deep discussion. This distinction is a common source of confusion. Introverts are often considered to be quiet, but that's not because they don't like people. They just don't like to talk about trivial things. Introverts are passionate people who want to make the most of their days, so they'd rather not waste their time with a shallow conversation. If you want to find out how fascinating an introvert can be, simply ask them an intelligent question about a topic that they care about. In 2015, a 21-year-old white supremacist named Dylan Roof sat quietly for almost an hour in a prayer meeting at a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Then he opened fire with a 45 caliber Glock killing nine people. In an online manifesto, Roof wrote, We have no skinheads, no real KKK, no one doing anything but talking on the internet. Well, someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that has to be me. A month later, John Russell Hauser, a drifter from Alabama, stood up in a crowded movie theater in Lafayette, Louisiana, and started shooting. He killed a shop owner and a college student and wounded nine other people before taking his own life. Online, Hauser expressed interest in white supremacist and neo-Nazi beliefs, as well as espousing lone wolf tactics. In a 2014 posting, he wrote, you must realize the power of the lone wolf is the power that can come forth in all situations. Look within yourselves. In April 2014, former Ku Klux Klan leader Frazier Glenn Miller gunned down a 69-year-old doctor and his grandson in the parking lot of a Jewish community center in Overland Park, Kansas. Next, he went to a nearby Jewish assisted living facility and killed a woman who was visiting her mother. Miller is a longtime anti-Semite who regularly posted on a racist forum about wanting Jews dead. 
none of his victims were Jewish. In August 2012, racist skinhead Wade Page went to a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and he killed six worshipers. Four other people were wounded, including the first responding police officer, who was shot 17 times but survived. I'm Sergeant Corey Flowers with the Greensboro, North Carolina Police Department. Wade Page was just one of many racist skinheads I monitored during the years he was in my area. No warning bells went off for me that Page was a future mass murderer. There were no obvious signs that he would go on a killing spree. But Page, Miller, and Roof are all classic examples of a lone wolf, a person who carries out a terrorist attack entirely on his own, without direction or orders from a group or leader. While international terrorism is on everyone's mind nowadays, it would be a serious mistake to discount homegrown terrorists, especially those acting on their own. In fact, a 2009 report from the Department of Homeland Security said, quote, white supremacist lone wolves pose the most significant domestic terrorist threat because of their low profile and autonomy. Austin, Texas Police Chief Art Acevedo learned that lesson the hard way. In November 2014, a man named Larry McWilliams went on a shooting spree. He fired more than 100 rounds at government buildings, including the police department. In his van were propane cylinders he planned to use to firebomb other targets. McWilliams was a follower of the racist religious doctrine known as the Phineas Priesthood. Chief Acevedo summed up the threat when he said McWilliams was, quote, a homegrown American extremist. Hate in his heart was part of his problem. What keeps me up at night is these guys, the lone wolf. Lone wolf violence is on the rise, and we in law enforcement must learn to identify this deadly serious threat before more lives are lost. Years ago, KKK rallies and burning crosses signaled the threat of racist violence, but today organized hate groups are in decline. This is because many would-be recruits are congregating on the web and communicating through social media rather than joining organizations. For instance, Dylan Roof said a white supremacist website was the primary influence in forming his racist beliefs. Glenn Miller posted almost 13,000 times on the racist and anti-Semitic forum Vanguard News Network. The lone wolf style of attack has proved more successful than plots in the past that were planned by major group leaders. Lone wolves are self-motivated to organize and execute attacks without direction from others. Though Wade Page was a member of a skinhead group, he appears to have carried out the temple murders because of personal triggers. He lost his job and his girlfriend. He apparently had no communication with his group about his plans. But his many years in the racist movement informed his choice of a target. Law enforcement officers are also increasingly becoming the targets of domestic terrorists. A 2014 study from the Anti-Defamation League tracked 43 incidents from 2009 to 2013 that involved domestic extremists and law enforcement. These were cases where shootouts occurred. Extremists fired at police or officers had to use their weapons to protect themselves. White supremacists and anti-government extremists were behind 90% of the cases examined. A study by the Intelligence Project of the Southern Poverty Law Center examined 63 incidents from April 2009 to February 2015. It found that a domestic terrorist attack or foiled attack occurred on average every 34 days, almost every month. 63 people died in those attacks along with 16 assailants. 
lone wolves were responsible for almost three-fourths of the incidents examined. Extremists worked in pairs in 10 of the remaining 16 attacks where the number of assailants was known. Only six cases involved three or more people. The study uncovered other key components of the attacks and the offenders behind them. A little more than half of the attacks were motivated by hate, including white supremacist and radical Islamic beliefs. The remaining attacks were triggered by anti-government beliefs, such as those held by sovereign citizens, who believe the government has no authority over them. Firearms were used in the majority of the incidents. 25% of the cases involved explosives. Other weapons, including arson fires and even a private plane, were used in 11%. The attackers were overwhelmingly male, with just seven female assailants. They also were much older than most violent criminals, who were usually 15 to 24 years old. The study found that the majority of the attackers, those whose ages were known, were between 30 and 49. A surprising number of them were much older. This suggests that lone wolves spend many years absorbing radical right ideology before finally committing violence. To these extremists, violence is the only answer. A former FBI profiler has documented the marked progression that terrorists go through to reach their ultimate solution. Joe Navarro, one of the founders of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, calls these extremists wound collectors. There are three distinct steps in their path toward violence, ideation, isolation, and action. In ideation, offenders form a specific grievance against a target, fixating on what they see as an injustice. They collect these grievances or wounds and nurture them, obsessing over them. It's during this time that the offender spreads his message to family or friends who either ignore the signs or think it's just talk and nothing will come of it. Once an offender's communications are ignored, he isolates himself physically and mentally. He retreats to the internet where racist websites and forums reinforce his beliefs. This is when he becomes really dangerous because there is nothing to counterbalance his obsession. Escaping into cyberspace also makes lone wolves much harder to track, but there are some warning signs. In a two-year study of almost 100 murders by racist extremists, the Intelligence Project identified 10 characteristics shared by killers who were active online. All the extremists in the study were unemployed, all engaged in some type of public activism, like protesting or leafleting, before turning to the internet. Most of the incidents occurred at home because triggers of violence are often personal. They posted on more than one racist forum or blog. There was sustained online activity. Almost all offenders had been on racist forums for more than 18 months. They exhibited antagonistic behavior with others on online forums. There was a change in their regular posting patterns, either an increase or a decrease. They discussed violence as an acceptable solution to problems. Weapons were discussed. And a specific enemy was identified, whether someone of another race or religion or the government. Finally, the offender is ready to act on his obsession. As Navarro described it, extremists in that state of mind have a lot of anxiety. And the only way to relieve that anxiety is to kill or harm somebody. Experts agree that lone wolf attacks are difficult to prevent, so what can be done to combat them? Identifying and hopefully preventing such attacks is not just the responsibility of law enforcement, but also of the public at large. Everyone has heard the slogan, see something, say something. In dealing with possible lone wolf attacks, law enforcement needs to add the message of hear something, do something. Old friends of Dylan Roof, who reconnected with him shortly before the Charleston shootings, said they noticed changes in him such as odd behavior and violent tendencies. 
His roommate said Roof had been plotting something big for months that, quote, he wanted to make something spark up the race war again. But the roommate never told the authorities. Another friend took Roof's gun from him after Roof had gone on a racist tirade two weeks before the shooting. Many other lone offenders advertised their plans for violence in various ways. FBI profiler Navarro said, under ideal situations you're tracking, when did this individual start communicating this stuff? Who are his associates? Is the verbal attack becoming more vicious? And does it look like they are psychologically crossing this line where they've convinced themselves that violence is the only thing to do? In the past, it was easy to spot the haters in their hoods and robes, their shaved heads and jackboots, or their paramilitary uniforms. But times have changed, and so have our homegrown terrorists. That means law enforcement has to change the way we keep the public and ourselves safe. During the past week, there have been at least three separate attacks launched by what are referred to as lone wolf terrorists, who are often inspired by propaganda from groups like ISIS. Last Monday in Quebec, a man who had converted to Islam and had become radicalized purposely crashed his car into two soldiers, killing one of them before he was shot dead. Two days later, another gunman with a similar story killed a soldier standing guard at a war memorial in Ottawa. He later raced into the parliament building before being shot dead. Then Thursday, in Queens, New York, a man who had posted comments sympathetic to the jihadists used a hatchet to attack four rookie police officers posing for a picture on the street. He, too, was shot dead. Today, on the Sunday talk shows, the heads of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees commented on the attacks. What kind of threat does that pose to our own national security? Uh, Huge and getting worse. These attacks and the multiplicity of attacks uh, in 2014 show that their propaganda is having some effect. For more about all this, we're joined now from Boston by Yitta Clausen. She is a professor at Brandeis University and the founder of the Western Jihadism Project, which tracks the activity of Islamist extremists in the West. So I want to ask, what's behind these lone wolf attacks? Well, we call them lone wolves, but in most cases they have been connected to networks and peer groups and militants for some time. And uh, they carry out the attacks by themselves, but they are not actually lone wolves in the sense that they have just become radicalized off the internet or something like that. Um, it, of course, there are exceptions to this general rule, but uh, uh, right now uh, there is uh, a call out from uh, the Islamic State group, uh, sometimes referred to as ISIL, uh, to carry out attacks on, on um, people who represent uh, the Western states. Okay, so we're also hearing more frequently about the sympathizers in the West who are lured to go and fight for ISIS. Um, What are the reasons for that? Well, one reason is that they have been able to go. Um, uh, ISIS uh, or ISIL has invited them. Uh, There were many Westerners who tried to go and fight for al-Qaeda in Iraq in the previous uh, insurgency in Iraq, and they weren't welcome. Uh, But uh, uh, ISIL has been pursuing a colonization strategy in Syria for some time. And so in the course of 2013, they started inviting Westerners to come and settle. And, and, and there were many Westerners who thought it was a very attractive proposition to walk around the streets of uh, the, the uh, Syrian uh, cities that they referred to as the liberated zones and, and, and police the local Muslim population in those places. So they were very attracted to the idea of, of getting control and, and, and being the big man or big woman on the block. 
Okay, well, once they get there, the story might change a bit. As your research tracks, there's actually a, a much higher mortality ratio of the Westerners who go in there. Uh, oftentimes, they're used as suicide bombers because they're not really much more good to ISIL or ISIS? Yes, that's correct. Um, but uh, in 2013, the mortality rates weren't so high. They have really picked up since uh, the start of this year. And we are now uh, picking up evidence of people who want to come home and, and have had regrets. But at the same time, even as that's happening, there are also new people who are leaving. Uh, so uh, there are, there, by my count, um, based on estimates from the different Western governments, there have been a, around 3,000 Westerners who have, uh, at one point in time, uh, gone off uh, and, and joined uh, the uh, extremist uh, jihadist groups. What happens when they come back? Is there evidence to show that they are more likely to launch an attack at their home in the West? Uh, there is evidence of that, uh, but uh, there are also some coming back who are uh, exhibiting signs of having had regrets, uh, particularly among some of the younger groups, the women, some of the teenagers who are taken off. Uh, but they are by no means uh, the only stream that has gone off. They're very hardened folks who have gone off to people with experience uh, from previous insurgencies, a Boston man uh, named uh, Ahmed Abu Samra, who went both to uh, Pakistan and to Yemen, and took off to uh, to Syria uh, to Syria in in 2006. Is now believed to be in charge of the um, social media operations on behalf of ISIL, and uh, so it, we should be careful not to draw too fast conclusions about uh, what sort of uh, threat. Um, these people uh, present when they come back. And, and for sure, we know from previous experiences with insurgencies and Westerners going off that uh, having had the experience of uh, learning how to uh, carry out violence, shooting a gun and putting together a bomb, uh, they, they will come back and they will uh, try to carry out violence uh, here. And there have been incidents already that have fortunately been foiled, uh, with the exception of one, uh, right. an incident uh, in, in Brussels at the Jewish Museum there. All right. Ita Clausen from Brandeis University joining us from Boston today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Class war, class war, class war. Now, Jim, show this gentleman how you can dance and sing. Towards the Western powers. If you want to say there's no war, fine. Don't go crying for your mummy when that comes. America today finds herself in a unique situation. She's the only country in history in a position to become involved in a bloodless revolution. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. When the system doesn't work for the majority of the people, you gotta change the system. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your brother, Ramir Deez, oh, God, yeah, and welcome to this Class War Battlefield podcast episode. I remember a few months ago, I'm recording this Labor Day, September 
uh, 4th, 2023, when uh, a group of Stop Cop City activists were ambushed and arrested and slapped with charges that compounded could send and would send many of them to jail or prison for 10 or more years. I remember when the Stop Cop City activist, um, and I forget his name, it starts with a T, was killed by cops who swore that somebody was shooting at them. I think there's a mental disease going on with people wearing badges where they hear in their minds people constantly shooting at them because that gives them an ability. Now, you may think this is a wrong way to think, but um, I was listening to a YouTuber who was actually a former cop, or is a former cop, and he was explaining the adrenaline, the culture, the aggressiveness that really does permeate the life of a police officer. And it is pounded into their heads to see threats, even if threats aren't there. Now, this could be um, not only due to their training, but also due to PTSD. And there's a lot of cops with PTSD, not only because of time out on the streets, but also um, live, they're, they're in a culture where a lot of people uh, fresh from real battlefields have come home to don uniforms to kind of relive that power angle. And so there's PTSD that comes from real war battlefields that creeps into policing. But I digress. There was a statement released by Governor Kemp out of Georgia who essentially called the Stop Cop City activists domestic terrorists and warned of greater consequences for their actions. And I had this thought. The state seems preoccupied with stopping Black Lives Matter or what the Trump administration called black identity extremists. It seems preoccupied with stopping Black Panthers, with stopping black people who are seeking justice or seeking, more importantly, to change the status quo To achieve justice, which would achieve justice, should I say. Now, I want you to note something, because I've always found this interesting. We say the word status quo, or the phrase status quo, but we don't see that there seems to be a connection between status quo and, uh, quo and state. Status is S-T-A-T-U-S, state is S-T-A-T-E. The state essentially holds together the status quo or the status quo holds together the state even when that status quo is injurious to the prolonging of the existence of the state I had a question 
from watching all this happen. Was the status quo supportive of right-wing terrorism? Was the status quo supportive of right-wing violence against left-winged people? The DIA, the policing, uh, the various community policing apparatus, connected nationally by various associations, have spent billions of dollars a year tracking, monitoring, trying to, quote, stop left-wing activists from doing things that would cause people to become aware of the fact that they're being screwed various ways. They've literally spent billions of dollars to do that. Most of the activities of these left-wing activists are nonviolent, And by most, I mean overwhelmingly so. You're talking 80 plus percent, probably closer to 90 percent of what they do is nonviolent. Now, of course, right-wingers will say, yeah, but, but even if it's 88 percent, there's 12 percent of people that, that I mean, it, it's violent. So you want to stop that. Okay, I want you to keep that in your mind. Because while they're spending billions of dollars to track and stop left-wingers, they're not doing the same thing when it comes to right-wingers. Why? Why? In the past 40 years, right-wingers have increasingly become violent. And if we wanted to go to the last hundred in 40 years, which would take us to the edge of the, um, actually, I think it would take us into the Civil War. It was the right-wingers that were the most violent. Now, of course, right-wingers would say, yeah, but the 70s and the 60s. My answer to that, because somebody actually brought that up to me about 10 years or so ago. And I said, well, yes, there was a lot of left-wing supposed violence in the 60s and the 70s. Some of that was actually caused by police departments. Some of that was caused by the FBI creating um, groups that were supposed to be left-wing dissident groups as they did overseas with, through the CIA. And those dissident groups would then commit violence. And then it would paint the left as being negative. But let's strip all that away. Let's say the majority of these people were true left-wing people who wanted violence or who executed violence. The funniest thing is, I'm a, I'm a very nonviolent person. I believe that we can achieve what we want to achieve through nonviolence. But I'm not stupid. My father was born in 1939, Louisiana. My father was able to shoot a gun with really good aim, because all of his family had really good aim, by the time he was four, my father needed that protection for himself and his family. Why? Because the right-wing, fascist, Louisiana segregationist government supported 
the Ku Klux Klan and their violent behavior. The Klan didn't need much to become violent. They just needed to, to sniff the air and think that, you know, the air offended them to rush into a black community, kidnap somebody, rape somebody, kill somebody. So, to, to, to shoot was an act of defense. As he explained to me, they were going to kill us. Either we killed them or they killed us. And we never went to their home and started anything, but they sure came to ours and started something. And when somebody comes to your home and starts something, you got every right that you have in the world to push them out. And if they don't want to leave, you send them home to God. My dad was one of the nicest people you'd ever meet. He'd give you the shirt off of his back, but play games and find out. He helped me to understand. He said, look, a lot of left-wingers in the 60s and 70s got sick of treating right-wing idiots like they had any true value because those right-wing idiots didn't see those left-wingers as having any value. So the left-wing started to strike back. They started talking to these people how they talked to them. My father acknowledged there was probably a mistake. Because up until that point, a lot of people were on their side. But that turned the tide. But he understood it. He got it. He, he could appreciate why it was happening. It took me a long time to appreciate it, to be honest with you. I appreciate it. Now I understand it. I'm older. I get it. I see the bigger picture. Today, it is that understanding that makes me concerned. We have seen an increase in right-wing violence in the past 10 plus years. The state seems incapable of stopping these attacks from happening. They can stop BLM people and stop, stop cop city activists from helping other activists. But they can't stop these right-wing militia groups. These right-wing quote-unquote lone wolves from killing people. Recently I was watching an interview from the sheriff of Jacksonville County where one of the recent um, neo-Nazi white supremacist shootings occurred. And this was just Days after it happened, the sheriff said with a percentage of confidence that stunned me that this guy doesn't seem to be affiliated with any groups. Wait a minute. Hold the phone. This man's manifesto seems very reminiscent of other manifestos that have turned up when these shootings have occurred, going all the way back to Dylan Roof, 
who was also supposedly a lone wolf? Rittenhouse, a lone wolf? All of the, the guy who shot up um, Tops, a lone wolf. All of these people are supposedly lone wolves. Well, let me ask you something, Mr. Sheriff. Let me ask everybody something. How is a wolf created? Oh, here you go with this logical thing. I mean, jeepers, man. It's just a metaphor. Okay, is it? Because the Black Panther Party was shredded down to people who were just slightly affiliated with somebody who might have gone to a possible meeting that may have been Black Panther inspired way the hell back in the 70s and the 80s. It was considered important to stamp out every ember of the Black Panther Party, no matter how small or how potential. It didn't even have to be smoldering. It didn't even have to be lit. If these organizations, these, quote, law enforcement organizations, thought that the ember existed in possibility, it was their job to smash that person down to make sure it never flourished. There was no idea of, we don't think this person is associated. Nope. Wow. You have something that looks like a panther that is on your wall in your home, and it was seen by the wrong person. We need to haul you in and talk to you, or we need to put you under surveillance because you may be connected to X, Y, and Z. Today, though, with an increasing appearance of these quote-unquote lone wolves, we continuously hear sheriffs telling us how none of these people were connected to any group. How is a wolf created? It's not a real wolf, is it? Is it? A wolf is created by two wolves. You know the process. Birds and bees talk. They have a baby. That baby grows up to be a wolf. That little pup grows up to be a wolf. These people are becoming twisted by a mechanism and a system that is producing the results that it is intending to produce. You're going to keep telling me that these folks who are going around here doing all this stuff, there is no connection to any group anywhere. I don't believe it. I will not believe it. Why? Because you'd say it too early. You have no clue if this man is connected to any group. None. But because he's white, and the victims are black, and this is clearly racially motivated, well, we want to tamp down the fear that black people may have, because, you know, black people might suddenly realize that they have to start arming themselves to protect themselves like they had to do a hundred years ago. You don't know who this man was connected to, and yet you're telling me that he can't be connected to anybody. Even though somebody like him continues to appear once or twice or three times a year for the last couple of years. 
So what are you talking? What are you saying to me that these people are just waking up suddenly one morning and saying, you know, something I hate, niggas. Let's kill them all. I'm going to write this long, rambling, sometimes coherent, oftentimes too dang coherent manifesto that nobody's going to read because I'm not connected to anybody. I'm not going to any Facebook pages. I'm not messing with anything on the dark web. I'm not going to any of these websites. I'm connected to nobody, so I'm writing this manifesto for myself, even though it's likely I'm going to be dead and I'm not going to be able to actually read it. Are you telling me at the end of the day that this person cannot be connected to anybody? That his actions are inspired by nothing? Not only is his actions inspired by nothing, his actions are inspired by nobody. Oh wait, of course he is. He cites, he probably cites, I haven't read his manifesto, he probably cites all of these other people who have done the things that he has done. But none of those other people were connected to anybody. I mean, Dylan Roof literally had pictures of him in an in, in a wooded area where he was clearly with other people. Clearly. Those people were not in the photographs. But he was clearly in a place with other people. And yet, he too was not connected to any group. By the way, I believe he is not in general population, Dylan Roof. The law enforcement is protecting this white supremacist killer who walked into a church, which I guarantee you some of the white folks who are protecting him are Christians. So they should be outraged that he walked into a church and killed a bunch of parishioners, killed a bunch of worshippers of God, but they're not. They are more in love with protecting him than they are with the Christians who didn't look like them. This is ridiculous. Ridiculous. You're going to tell me with no proof that this man had no connection to anybody. Because if he had connections to even one person that is connected to another person who is connected to a group. Then that brings alarm to black folks throughout the country. But you would prefer for black people to have their guards down while this terrorism continues. Let me, let me propose something to you. Let me propose something to you. Let's flip the script. Let's say one of these people gets stupid. And they actually do get on an HBCU campus. And just like what happened in Virginia Tech back in, what was it, 207? 208? I think it was 207. A story that we don't really think about. And a story that has a tragic racial component that we didn't, 
it got lost in the media and it stopped being talked about immediately. But let's say, oh, I should probably tell y'all about it. Um, so the racial component is this. The first two, in uh, I believe it was Virginia Tech where the shooting happened. Um, the first two people who were killed was a white woman and a black man. The officers who arrived on the scene quickly determined that it was a murder-suicide. You could probably imagine who was the murderer and who was the person who committed suicide. The murderer was the black man. He killed the white woman, and then he committed suicide. The thing that, that, that bothered them was that they couldn't find a gun. There was no gun. They were, they were completely um, baffled by that. Where the heck is the gun? If it's a murder-suicide, where's the gun? It was only when other people were murdered and they started getting calls about other people being killed that they realized, oh shoot, this isn't a murder-suicide. This was a murder, two people dead, and we need to go and instead, of, we should have been looking for this guy, but because we thought it was black guy violence, we weren't looking for him. And by the way, for those of you who think that this is improbable, somewhere, because I knew they, the, the change in the story started happening so rapidly, I downloaded and saved an article where this was actually found. And it was a mainstream article where this was reported. And this was something that was told by somebody who was in the investigation. It might have actually been the sheriff or the chief or something like that who, who mentioned it. But that's the racial component that has been forgotten to time. It's almost crazy. It's almost been 20 years since that happened. Wow. Anyway, let's say one of these people gets stupid. And they hit, up, they hit an HBCU. And they kill 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 young black people. And finally, black folks snap. And they hit a white community. Let me ask you this. Let's say a black person snaps, black guy, goes into a white community, kills four or five or six, quote, innocent white people. What do you think the response is going to be? Do you think the sheriff of that area, do you think the police chief of that area is going to come through and say, oh yeah, well you know something, We th this person has no connection to anybody. This person has none, no connection to nobody. Oh hell no. You know what's going to happen? Let me explain to you what will happen. Assuming that black person doesn't commit suicide because he may, he may. But let's say they don't, they're going to be tortured because that's what white people do to things who hurt them is they torture them. And then every person that has come across the pathway, every black person that has stepped in the shadow of the person who commits that crime will be hauled in and will be interrogated and will be squeezed for information. They won't care. It could be the mother. It could be the auntie. It could be the grandmama. It could be the, the, everybody will be a suspect. 
and they will probably charge one or two people just because the person's black. They will say, well, this person helped him do this, even though the person may have helped him and not had any clue what the other person intended to do with it. And this person helped him with this, even though, again, the person probably had no clue of what the person was actually going to do with it. But it don't matter. You can't say that you're ignorant of the law. All these people are to blame because these five people died. They won't do it with white people, though. The number of white folks who have crossed the path of this racist and helped him will never be interrogated, will never be sent into an interrogation room. Why? Because we don't, we don't want black people to think that this is systemic. We need them to believe that this is just one crazy person and it's a white person who, you know, he's a, he's a lone wolf. Well, how is a wolf created again? <laughs> this is the insanity of the legal arm of the United States. You can, quote-unquote, get turned inside out. That's what I call it. I don't call these people getting radicalized because they aren't radicals. They are not radicals. They're getting agitated. They're getting angry. And they're using that agitation. They're using that anger towards hate. But you can get agitated through various channels. Listening to various people online, who use dog whistles and don't use that many dog whistles anymore. And yet, you can go and you can read all kinds of crap on how black people are inferior and how they're destroying white civilization and all this other nonsense. And then you can go and you can kill a bunch of black people and you have no connection to nobody. But you let a black person get pissed off enough to go after a white person... And every, every single individual that ever came across that black man is going to be dragged into a police department. And I guarantee you something, again, I say it because it's the truth. Somebody else is going down with them. The state protects these right-wing killers. These right-wing killers are part of the state. They know. And that's the thing that gets me, is they know what type of people these right-wingers are. They know. And yet, they're not stopping them. They're not. See, in, in, in the 1960s, if it had not been for the international game that the United States was trying to play with the Soviet Union, and the fact that the U.S. started looking bad on the international, quote, stage because of how black folks were being treated in this country, they wouldn't have done anything about the right-wing terrorism that was affecting our communities back then. They wouldn't have. But it looked bad internationally, so they had to change. And not everybody wanted to change. Now it doesn't matter. Now it doesn't matter. Which makes this time that much more dangerous for black folks. Because it really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, 
these white supremacist people are going to do something that elicits a response from the black community and all bets will then be off. Because a guy that I knew years ago, I haven't seen him in almost 20 years now, he was a Nazi. And he was a proud Nazi. And he was very adamant about how much he hated blacks and he he didn't particularly like me, but he also told me it was a shame. <laughs> he told me it was a shame I was black because oh you'd make a good white man. I'm like, yeah, no I wouldn't. No I wouldn't. I like being black, thank you. But I asked him, I was like, so you you hate Jewish people, even though you don't know many Jewish people. And he spouted off the regular Nazi stuff. And I was like, okay. And he says to me, I go, but why do you really hate them? And he was like, because they're swine, they're this, they're that, and that, and that. And I go, okay. Well, you know, they, they at least got their stuff together, though. I mean, you know, they built a state for themselves, things like that. And he goes, oh, that was because of us. I was like, huh? And he goes, yeah, that's a mistake we made. We actually pushed them into each other's arms. I'm like, huh? And he was like, yeah, in Germany. If we didn't actually do what we did with the Holocaust. And I was like, oh, you actually believe in the Holocaust? Okay, cool. And he was like, yeah, if we didn't do what we did with the Holocaust, they wouldn't have the, they wouldn't have had the, the, the um, motivation to come together. And that never, that never left me. That never left me. Because if these right-wingers keep it up, black people sooner or later are going to get together. And then the state's really going to show who it supports and who it doesn't. Because the biggest fear of the state seems to be that black folks come together in peace and harmony to do what's best for ourselves. And for anybody else who wants to do better and you know be humanitarian and all that. That seems to be one of the biggest fears. I watch with eager eyes to see what these people do when Trump is defeated in 2024. It's not a guarantee, but if he is, if he is, y'all need to realize something. This is going to cause panic to run through the right right wing. Why? I've talked about this before, and it needs to be understated. It needs to be underscored here. Demographically, the right cannot win without dramatically altering what they're talking about in, you know, going into the 2030s. The elevation of more non-white voices into governing positions 
will change not only the direction of this country, but will cause the right wing to have to change their tactics. There are many institutions in this country that are trying to prepare themselves for a minority rule situation. And what I mean by minority rule situation isn't that minorities will rule, meaning non-white people, but that white people will rule behind the scenes while letting black people and brown people and yellow people appear like they're ruling in the main. A lot of these right-wing militia groups, a lot of these right-wing terrorist groups, they are the vanguard of such a plan. Because what they will end up doing is when that shift occurs where the white power structure moves further into the background as it does, as it exists uh, in that way in many, 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 many countries, including South Africa. These people will become the protectors of that behind-the-scenes, behind-the-curtains power structure. Obviously, there's also the other way that this all can go, too where those structures break down because of incoherence and um, incompetence, which will leave the real power dangling out for whoever wants it. And that's also a major possibility and probability, to be honest with you. If that happens, black people non-white people in general, will have a huge role to play in controlling the destiny of this country, and that control will be absolute. I believe the right-wing terrorist groups know that it's more likely that this second option is going to happen, and that is why they're as active as they are now. The right-wing actually has destroyed the structures that would have made the first option possible. By scooping out the government, by scooping out the bureaucracy, by scooping out the barriers that kept corporations separate, primarily separate, not completely separate, from government, which would have made that first option, that behind-the-scenes power structure probable and possible and a near certainty this far into the game, They have left that second option open. And that second option is being held off right now because black people don't have the financial capacity to play a bigger role in controlling those instruments, those institutions that, um, that really dominate the economy, which is where most of the power is in this country. Once that shakes out. Game's over. Now, granted, I don't think black folks actually want that, but you see the importance of all this. After 2024, we are going to really see what the right wing is about. I will make a few predictions here. And these are not 100% my predictions, but I agree with them, so I'm going to, I'm going to speak on them presently. One, 
assuming Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris wins a second term, and assuming what I believe is going to be not necessarily a Democratic wave here, but a probability when the Democrats keep the Senate and take back the House, assuming that happens, and also assuming that the Democrats make gains in 2026, I think you're going to see secession start to be bantered around by a lot of states in the South. I'm looking at Texas. I'm looking at Florida. Possibly, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, or Alabama. Maybe even Georgia. I doubt Georgia, but maybe. And why? Why, why would I say secession will be bantered about? Even if Texas doesn't go blue in 2024, Texas will go blue in 2028 or 2032. Why? The demographics of the state are dramatically skewing that way. Moreover, black folks are registering to vote in unprecedented numbers down there. There's still more that needs to be done. A lot of Latino leftists are registering to vote in increasing numbers. And you have a, a, a increasing Asian population, which votes Democrats, uh, Democratic, moving into the state as well. There has been a move by the Texas governor to take control of Houston, which is a very big Democratic stronghold and a increasingly involved um, uh, county when it comes to um, the state's apportioned delegates to the federal election. Um, they, they're trying to take it over because if black people increase their capacity, or uh, I'm sorry, to inc uh, they increase their participation significantly in Houston, that can be enough to skew a percentage point towards the Democratic Party. Then if you go to some of the other cities where black people aren't voting at at too high numbers, and you start getting them involved. This includes Dallas, Fort Worth, and the like. Even El Paso. That gap, which seems insurmountable, will not be. In fact, I really think that um, the governor of Texas is frightened right now. He believes that there's a probability, a higher probability than has been the case in a long time, that Texas may go blue in 2024. He has the information to confirm this. But he isn't saying it. But his actions are saying it. If, 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 Texas don't go blue in 2024, they, and, and the Democrats make strides in 2024 and 2026, they have both um, uh, the Senate and the House, I'm going to tell you, I believe Texas will be one of the first to say, now we, we're really thinking about seceding. This is about to get interesting. 
And once when that secession is put on the table, the terrorism is likely to increase for black folks. I want to thank you guys for listening today. I'm your brother, Brian Mary Diesel Guy. If you like the work that I'm doing, you can hit me up, CWB Podcast, CWB Podcast, um, PayPal, Cash App. Um, if you want to give just $2, $4, $6, whatever you want to give, you know, uh, just throwing into the coffers. I appreciate your uh, whatever you can give me. Um, big up to Dr. Obadashaka and... To all the crew, oh, if you want to, if you want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me, radio, the number four, A-L-L.net, radio, the number four, A-L-L.net, um, yeah, and I have quite the list now of, um, left-wing podcasts, uh, which I'm not going to do them all here right now, I'm going to close this off, thank you guys for listening. I'm your brother, Brian Mary D. So, Gaia, reach out to a brother. I love hearing from y'all. I'll see you on the next one. Because I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interest runs. On the radio talk shows and the TV, you hear one thing again and again. How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who find they can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone And there are lights in the valley